Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. I have the verses there printed for you. In your outline, I will uh, note that I will read verses 1 through 7 of Titus 3. We'll take three weeks to go through this very pivotal chapter in this great book, this small letter of Paul to Titus. Titus, his pastoral protege who was sent to Crete to help set that church in order, to bring order to it and stability to it and important instruction to it. And so this letter uh, has a constant balance of doctrine and duty, what is true and then what to do. And we come to chapter 3 after just hearing in the last verses of chapter 2 the great message of grace. Brothers and sisters, none of us here ought to be motivated by guilt. We shouldn't read a command in Scripture and think, I better do it or I'll feel guilty or not say it that way, but do it because we feel guilty. Uh, Look what God did for me. Uh, I should at least do this and have this sense of guilt and dread over why we follow God's commands. No believer should do anything based on guilt. All the guilt that could ever be had was poured upon Christ on the cross and punished by the Father in our stead. So we insult Christ's work to some degree when we react with guilt and respond by obeying because of guilt. None of us should be uh, driven by fear. God's going to zap us if we don't follow his commands. Uh, Fear should not be the motivating factor for a believer to obey God. Guilt and fear to the most common human motivators ought to not exist in the life of a believer as to why they would obey We learned and have learned throughout Scripture, but in particular the verses that we last studied in chapter 2, that grace is what should motivate us. Gratitude for the undeserved favor God has given us, us who deserve God's wrath. So now we live a life of of response to God's great grace. That's why we obey. So now we come to chapter 3, which again paints for us doctrine, what is true, and also Duty, what we should then do. Hear God's word in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, though our focus today will be specifically on verses 1 through 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you see why we do what we do? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for grace motivation, for gratitude that you build up in us when we realize from what we've been saved. Lord, I pray that we would be different people. I pray that we would read this text today in these first three verses and see how we might respond 
in gratitude to you. How that you might use us to reach this world for Christ. To manifest saving and sustaining grace in our lives. I pray that would be true today. In Jesus' name, amen. We have uh, come to what I call in scripture a grace sandwich. We have grace on the one side, a clear explanation in chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, and we have a clear picture of God's unmerited favor shown to people who deserve wrath on the other side, in the last few verses of chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Sandwiched in between grace is an important duty for us to follow and consider. These three verses we'll study today. In fact, we'll see two ways in which we live out this grace that has been shown to us. We live it out with relationship to the governing authorities that God has placed over us. We also live it in relationship to the world that we live with. Uh, Basically, how are we to react, live with, relate to an unbelieving world? Motivated by grace, we have some clear instruction for us. Very simply, the verses before us are about how we, the recipients of God's sustaining and sustaining grace, are to live in society. How we're to live among unbelievers. How we are to live in this culture. Hardly more practical stuff than this. It's our task, brothers and sisters, heirs of grace. It is our task to make God's saving grace manifest through our lives to a watching world. I think never, at least in our lifetime, never has time been more critical for Christians to live out the grace of God in our lives by behaving and interacting graciously with the world in which we live. I think living lives that are identifiably different would be impossible if it were not for being motivated by the grace of God. This is why the message of grace is so important in crafting our gratitude and cultivating us a spirit of reaction to God's grace that helps us sustain this life before the world that God is reaching. God's grace trains us in godliness. It teaches us obedience. Spurgeon said it so well when he said, wherever the grace of God comes effectually, it makes the loose liver deny the desires of the flesh. It causes the man who lusted after gold to conquer his his greediness. It brings the proud man away from his ambitions. It trains the idler or the lazy person to be diligent. And it sobers the wanton mind which cared only for the frivolities of life. Not only do we leave these lusts, but we deny them. And it's as a response to the great grace shown to us. Not because of guilt and not because of fear, but because of gratitude. How can we manifest God's saving grace before the world? How can we live out the gospel? Well, we see here in this passage that having been transformed by God's grace, we can now live graciously and purposefully in this world. Look at the first two verses because we see how we ought to exhibit and live out gracious civic conduct. Uh, Gracious civic conduct that befits the heirs of grace. Verses 1 and 2 of our text. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. 
Do you see the division? First, verse 1 speaks to gracious conduct in relationship to government. Verse 2 speaks of gracious conduct in relationship to our fellow man. Let's look at verse 1 first as we read about being submissive to governing authorities. Verse 1 says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. A commentator, Guthrie, says that the apostle here fears that the turbulent Cretans might too readily implicate the church in political agitation, which could only bring the gospel under suspicion. See, the Cretans were kind of known for their turbulence, and they had become believers. They had a worldview shift, yet the apostles' concern that this, their, their cultural makeup could cause them uh, to maybe be turbulent and agitate against the government. In fact, the Roman government already disliked the Cretans. They were a far way south in Greece, and they consistently caused problems for the Roman government. So they're being reminded here, as we are to be reminded, that we ought not be a hindrance to the gospel by stirring up undue turbulence. One commentator states that Cretans were notoriously turbulent and quarrelsome and impatient of all authority. Now, we would expect new believers who are Cretans or whatever they are to be different, but you know and I know that things just don't turn it the second you become a believer. You still struggle with some of the old propensities, and these Cretans certainly had that in their background. Polybius, the Greek historian, notes that Cretans were constantly involved in insurrections, murders, and interceding wars. So when it says, remind them here, it's speaking of a general teaching that Paul brings up throughout his writings, but it also is speaking of something particular, a particular temptation that could have been true for these new Cretan believers. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 13 for a moment. It is the definitive passage on the relationship between believers and the government. Romans 13, you can look in your pew Bibles or if you have your Bibles, or listen as I read the first several verses of Romans 13, an important passage when studying how we are to relate with government. Uh, Peter mentions similarly, the Lord Jesus talks about giving unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And Paul brings these things to a head in Romans 13, the first few verses. Hear closely and allow the Holy Spirit to convict you as it He's convicted me uh, when you hear these words of how we believers, the heirs of grace, ought to relate with government. Romans 13, verse 1 and following, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you are wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And you could read on and see very explicitly how Paul speaks. Now, if you're like me, and I'll say it honestly, I thought, but you have no idea what the government's like sometimes, or how incompetent, or how 
how filled with bribery it is or dishonest or politicians this or politicians that. Well, guess what? This is written against the backdrop of Nero, not Constantine. The situation here was far worse than anything anyone here most likely has ever experienced. And Paul still says to be subject. He does not say sin if the government tells you to sin. There's never, you never do that. But he is saying to obey the laws, obey the governance. Don't be a thorn in the side of the governing authorities. They're appointed by God. They're God's servant to fulfill a certain role in human civilization that God has appointed. Paul did not tell us to obey the government if it was Christian. Paul wants to remind Titus, to remind the Cretans to be submissive to government. Very simply and very practically, we are just, as believers, to obey the laws. We shouldn't be people saying and backbiting and talking about what a bad law it is. Thankfully, in our system, we have ways in which to change laws, follow those those paths. But in the meantime, we obey the laws that exist. Speed limit. Speed limit. Various regulations. Pay our taxes. We shouldn't be civilly disobedient unless it's to protest sin that's being mandated. Christians of all people should be law-abiding citizens. On the most basic level, to have a word or a say in the public square, we ought to be those people who exemplify what faithful citizenship is. We have to recognize God's ordained role and respect it. Nothing makes me more uncomfortable than when I hear well-meaning Christians speak of certain politicians in very personal terms. It's one thing to disagree with a person's policy. We're called to do that if it is opposed to Scripture. It's another thing to make personal attacks vicious like I see them so often and just say because that person's not a believer, it's okay. Quite the opposite should be the case for a believer in how we treat people. Recognize that the government is God's ordained role and respect it. I think there's still a sense of respect people have for the clergy today. I know it's wane, but generally when people find out I'm a pastor, they treat me better. They're a little nicer. They say a few things different. Most of them don't believe I am a pastor. But we ought to think of public officials in a similar way, regardless of what their personal conviction or positions are. If you have an opportunity to share that, you can. That's part of representative government. But do you look at a member of the Senate or the Congress, whether it be state or federal, do you look at them as ministers of God? Because the scripture says they are. And Christians should at least have a respect level that reflects what we recognize God has commanded us so that we can manifest the saving and sustaining grace of God to the world, starting with our citizenship. Notice what it says in the second part of verse 1. Be ready for every good work. Still, it's talking in the context or our relationship with government. Be ready for refers to an eagerness to serve in a civil way. You know, it's not enough just to be law-abiding. We should look for ways to serve the community in general ways. Good work could refer to any deed done in obedience to Christ out of love for others. But in context, it clearly refers to being prepared and willing to participate in activities that promote the welfare of the general community. You know, there are many ways in which we can be involved. We're all busy people. But I hope as believers, we look for ways to be involved in our community that may not be explicitly gospel proclamation ministry. 
I would argue it is if you're obeying God's word and working itself out in your life. But think of all the functions and ways in which you already are able to engage yourself in community building type experiences. There are fundraisers for worthy medical causes that come up. There are participation in helping the poor, someone who has experienced a tragedy in your workplace. Sometimes these things come up. Volunteering for community events can be part of it. Uh, We ought to be known in our community as community people, not Christian recluses who only do our thing and will only participate in activities if it means more members of our church or more professions of faith. We're supposed to be among all people gracious in gratitude because of what God has done and it should show itself in the way we treat other people and what we participate in. I love what one commentator says about this. We must not stand coldly aloof from praiseworthy enterprises of government, but show good public spirit, thus proving that Christianity is a constructive force in society. You know, there's a great frustration that I share. I mean, I grew up in New York State. There's a great frustration I share with the amount of programs that the government continually pays for to do. Well, one of the main reasons why there's so many programs, or at least the perception that we need these programs, is there's so little volunteerism that's done. The church just mocks, you know, what the state does rather than pick up the charity that's really our mandate. I mean, charity wasn't given to the government. It's given to the people of God. And much of the need or the perceived need for these things is developed because of a lack of participation on the part of God's people to reach out with mercy, to reach out with charity, to volunteer, to support the government. Be ready for every good work. Be eager. Have a spirit of helpfulness. The term active citizenship means or implies working towards the betterment of one's community through economic participation, public service, volunteer work, and other such efforts to improve life for all citizens. Please hear me. These things are not a replacement for gospel proclamation. But they are not things we should shun either. We should be part of them. They give opportunity for greater gospel proclamation. There are so many examples of community service projects that we could do. Maybe even think about your own home fellowship group taking up one of these community services and carrying them out. You can go to a website, even a local one here for Overland Park, and Olathe has one as well, where there are different community services the government is asking people to help with. It could be cleaning a park. It could be collecting items, clothing, shoes, food, blankets, you name it getting involved with Habitat for Humanity, or reading to the elderly in nursing homes, helping out a local fire police department, performing health assessments if you have those skills, helping out at a local library, tutoring developmentally disabled children. There's a whole list, and these are local needs that are, there is a need for volunteers to do. If more Christians would be involved, there would be more opportunity then to manifest in their life the saving and sustaining grace of God. Be ready for every good work. He's speaking to Christians here in relationship to the government and what the government asks for assistance in. But notice verse 2 also, gracious conduct in relationship to our fellow men. And we're talking about, generally speaking here, a pagan world. This is what is true for the Cretan church. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. These are the functions that each Christian should carry out in the, in the church, but also in our community, speaking evil of no one, 
Uh, And speaking evil here means to blaspheme or to revile, to hurt the reputation or smite with reports or words or speak evil or slander, rail against others. And our human tendency is to boost ourselves, and sometimes that can best be done by putting down others. And we know as Christians not to do it in the church, but do we carry out that same restraint in the subdivision? When, not if, when the neighbor comes and says, do you wonder how so-and-so was able to buy that? Or what do you think so-and-so is doing? Do you entertain it? Or do you seek to speak evil against no one and be salt in your subdivision or your community and say, I don't know that we should really talk about it that way. We don't know what's happening over there. Maybe they need help from us or maybe we can go check up on them. And if you just have a few believers sprinkled in the various communities, the amount of gossip and slander and backbiting and evil speaking would be brought very low. You only need a few pieces of salt to season. To speak evil of no one. We're not the neighborhood gossips. that We don't sow seeds of discouragement. We resist the temptation to involve ourselves in slanderous conversations. This can go in the workplace as well. Anything you are involved with community-wise, set a solid, encouraging, God-honoring tone when speaking about others. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many people go to sports leagues where your kids are in the leagues and they're with many people who may or may not be believers? Uh, Do you have the same etiquette, the same behavior in those games with the referees, with fellow parents that you do in the church? What a way we can be salt right off. We could change things really quickly. You know, I had a chance to, to get to know the, the, one of the directors of Blue Valley Soccer because he helped line our field. And frankly, it was discouraging to hear his report of what he has had to go through from parents and just the, the kinds of assaults that the volunteer coaches get from parents. I hope that is not true of the people of Christ. It's a huge part of our culture an easy way to manifest the grace of God to a watching world and how we treat others. Even in that context, it is so common to all of us. Verse 2, not quarrelsome. Uh, That's what it means when it says to avoid quarreling. That is, they're peaceable or we're peaceable, we're uncontentious. Uh, Interestingly, the Greek word for this is amacho, which is amacho, which is no macho. It's a good word. It's not about our ego and winning the battle or winning the argument or winning whatever it is. That we would be willing to concede some of our rights, which is so foreign to any thinking, let alone unbelieving thinking, and will starkly show something different about what you believe, who you are, who saved you. We're not quarrelsome. You know, there are some people who live for battles. How they live one battle to the next. That's almost their purpose. Be a peacemaker. Do what it takes to not engage in conflict and confrontation. The Proverbs say that a soft answer turns away wrath. Kids who have been kind of zoning out so far. Children. I mentioned sports leagues. There's dance leagues. There's, there's karate. There's those of you who go to schools where there's a lot of people who don't know Christ. You children have a great opportunity. You young people, you teenagers, you older students have a wonderful opportunity to not get involved in this quarrelsomeness that is so endemic of our society. This battle, this this constant rivalry between factions and people and 
these kids are my friends, these kids are not my friends, and oh, look what she's wearing, she should wear this, why is she wearing that, and all the stuff that goes on that's evil. That's what it is, kids. It's not something that's okay. It's something that if you do it when you're younger, you'll be just that way when you get older. And you don't want to be a person who's a destroyer. You want to be a person who is an encourager and a builder and one who God actually uses to manifest his grace to the world watching. Not quarrelsome. Gentle, it says also in verse 2, simply meaning forbearance. Being quick to concede your rights as Christ did. Being kind, not quick-spoken or harsh-worded. Courteous, it says, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. It's a meekness towards others. Letting others go first. Respecting people. Being polite and helpful towards everyone. Don't discriminate. Just try for a moment when you're standing in line at a store and let someone go ahead of you or do something gracious. Something you would do here in church. Do it there. When you're at the line at the pot providence meal that we have, you let someone else go ahead. You wouldn't want to look like you're the first one wanting to get the line and cut other people. Be the same way at Price Chopper. Be the same way at a four-way stop. They're little things, brothers and sisters, but according to Paul to Titus, these things will actually help manifest the great grace that is put on either side of these commands. We should not discriminate who we're kind to. We don't have to agree with someone else to be courteous and kind to them. But look at verse 3 now as we turn towards the remembrance of from whence we have come, from what we have been saved from. Providentially, as I studied this passage, and I thought to myself, so many in our church have grown up in the church. So many have only known one ethic or one worldview. And even though there may have been a point in time where uh, there was, the lights went on and God's regeneration actually occurs and, and, and you recognize it in your life in the church, most will always know a certain way of thinking, a certain worldview. Uh, but today we took in a new member who had become a believer when she was 25 years old. She distinctly remembers a total worldview shift when Christ saved her. Totally, it's very cognizant to her. Even these many years later, she remembers exactly how things turned for her. And I say this to you because I think all of us need to remember that not everybody thinks like us. And they freak out when they hear how you think. And maybe you freak out when you remember how you used to think. And you realize it's God who who shifted you. It literally took you from staring at one idol and turned him to King Jesus. That's the shift. That's how radical it is. And someone who's not a believer doesn't understand this. And we ought to be patient with that fact. We shouldn't change our convictions, but recognize that the world doesn't understand the way Christians think. Because they're still worshiping at the throne of self. Just like you were. Just like I was. Look at verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaved to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That picture of futility in verse 3 is actually the true story of every unbeliever's life and heart. In America, we've been able to cover it with money, cover it with stuff, cover it with activities that make us look happy, cover us with people and communities and various organizations we could be part of. We have all these securities we place around us, but in the pit of our being as an unbeliever, the real truth is that we live a life of utter futility. That's really what life is. And some of the railing against the church is because it angers someone who's an unbeliever to think that we have an answer that gives satisfaction and contentment and that violently 
confronts you when the Lord is self. When you become a believer, when you are transformed by God's grace, if we've been, as we have been speaking, you undergo a radical worldview shift. What happens upon regeneration is a total shift of your universe. Before Christ, in your natural state, let's say it this way, in my natural state, the center of the universe was Tony. Now, I have to be nice to some degree to some of you if the center of the universe is Tony, so you'll be nice to me. The bottom line, though, is I'm nice to you so that you make my universe better. So the reason I'm nice to you isn't for devotion to God, it's because it'll make my life better. And that's the reason why it looks like I'm nice on the surface. But in effect, you only need to cross me to find out who I'm loyal to, and it's me. Ultimately, it's me. So everyone is ultimately here to serve me, no matter how smiley I am about it. My center, my universe is me. And so if I see someone else oppressing someone else over here because they do this or do that, I don't care what activity is happening so long as it doesn't affect me in my universe. If it starts to come into my universe, now i got a problem with it. And so all my ethics, everything in my worldview is shaped by how it affects me and my happiness and my sense of contentment in my way in this world. My survival instincts are on high alert. But when Christ saved me, he replaces the person at the center of the universe, which is me, with King Jesus. Quite against my will. And now everything looks different. I have to now reinterpret everything I've been doing and realize... I haven't been serving Christ, I've been serving self. And at first, I become a bit obnoxious about it. I cannot believe I've been serving self like this, and I want to tell everyone how they're serving a false God. And then over time, hopefully, God gives a certain bit of gentleness, a certain bit of humility that comes as you understand grace and realize we were once, in verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Now in Christ... If the choice that people make that I watch threatens the holiness of God, that's why I react. Not because I'm some prude or I have a problem with this ill or this immorality. It's not that. It's because I see it as a a confrontation of God's holiness now, and that's why we react like we do. And the world doesn't understand that. They think we're just trying to be holier than thou. But what we're really trying to say is if we keep going down this path of immorality as a culture, it will run headlong into God's judgment. And we don't want anyone to have to undergo that judgment. We just recognize that and we raise the alarm, so to speak. It's a worldview shift that sees things through the eyes of God and his holiness and his glory and his salvation. The worldview shift is massive and we have to remember it. We have to understand that the world will not understand our position on a great many things. We have to understand that the world will see us as radicals, intolerant, and otherwise hateful because we have a different worldview. Christ is at the center of our universe, not human passions or persuasions. This is why Paul reminds Titus and the new zealous, new worldview believers of Crete from whence they have recently come in verse 3. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, futility. What does futility mean? It means lack of importance or purpose, frivolousness. Here are many other words that go in connection with futility. And this is what the life of one without Christ truly is when all the stuff is stripped away. 
uselessness, ineffectiveness, fruitlessness, falseness, hollowness, triviality, frivolity, idleness, vanity, emptiness, hopelessness, worthlessness, labor in vain, lost trouble, unprofitableness, purposelessness, pointlessness, meaninglessness, insubstantiality, vainness, bootlessness, falsity, illusion, folly, want of substance, unimportance, carrying water in a sieve, wild goose chase, sowing the sand, labor for nothing, running around in circles, beating the air, spinning one's wheels. Brothers and sisters, we need to have compassion for an unbelieving world because that's what their life is like. And if you can't get motivated to share the gospel and word, please see your need to share it indeed to get to that point. Do you want anyone to live and die this way? Do you want to see others come to understand the grace of God in Christ that you didn't deserve, you didn't seek after? Well, the method God has ordained, the means he has ordained, is that the people of God be salt and light. And by what they say and what they do, and in these verses sandwiched between the great grace that is ours, we have a command or some duties that we have that we can respond to God's grace by doing and see people come. Look at this futility listed here. No more foolishness. Foolishness is without spiritual wisdom or understanding. Our hearts are darkened. But now in Christ, we have spiritual light. No more rebelliousness. We disobeyed God. We lived for ourselves. We hated the thought of submission or obedience to any authority, including God. But now we have grateful submission to the one who has rescued us from our rebellion. We're no longer deceived. Not having understood spiritual truth, we were led astray. We believed in various forms of godlessness, philosophies about the world, matters of moral purity. We were led astray on. How could we find satisfaction? We answered that question wrong. What goals to pursue? What relationships to be part of? We all messed up for us. What would make us happy? All deceptions before the light of Christ shined on our hearts. Slaves to various passions no longer. Uh, Clark, the classic commentator, said, says regarding this, that we're not served or gratified by our lusts and pleasures, but living as their slaves. In other words, the pleasures and passions we give ourselves over to apart from Christ, they're not even satisfying us. We keep going after them, but they don't satisfy us. They enslave us. We live as their slaves, a life of misery and wretchedness. But when Christ shines a light of his grace upon us and changes us, now all of a sudden, our whole view is let loose as to what has real meaning and eternal value and significance. And we're freed from bondage to those things. Oh, we struggle. But there's a freedom from the bondage of those things. And probably the most convicting portion of this verse, verse 3, it's the part that I'd say, I don't know anyone like that passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Malice means ill will or it's a desire to see someone injured or hurt. Envious is jealousy or a pain felt uh, when they see someone else doing well. Well, this is true of our lives following their natural course. Romans 1 says it well. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, 
foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve, deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. There's a natural fallen progression that happens in the life of, a, of an unbeliever. It shows itself in many ways, and none of us as unbelievers are as bad as we possibly could be. But the potential is always there in our natural state to pass our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Brothers and sisters, there will never be peace on earth apart from the salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Do you know why people murder each other? Because they're hateful murderers, not because they didn't have economic opportunity. Do you know why terrorists do what they do? Because they're wicked murderers. That's why. Do you know why people backbite, slander, scorn, and seek to hurt one another? Because man in his natural state, apart from the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, is a backbiter, a scornful person, a slanderer, a murderer, a herder. And all us were once like that, or at least on that road, if it were not for the grace of God saving us. I like what one pastor says in this passage. Very few would admit that they are hateful because we like to flatter ourselves as being loving people. But hatred is essentially self-centeredness and disregard for others' feelings and needs. If someone hurts me and I respond by thinking or saying, he can just drop dead or they can go to hell for all that I care. That's hatred. If I say I don't ever want to talk to that person again, that's hatred. So even if it doesn't take the outward form of trying to hurt or kill someone, we all were marked by hatred before we came to Christ because we all live for ourselves and we were indifferent towards others, unless they could meet our needs, this pastor says. Maybe you're thinking, he challenges, well, I was never like this terrible description in verse 3. I was basically a good person even before I became a Christian. It is true, he says, that not everyone displays all of these characteristics to the worst degree. Maybe you had a good upbringing where your parents taught you to be considerate of others, to practice Christian morality. Perhaps your sin was restrained because of your circumstances. But if you know your own heart as God sees it, every one of these sins was lurking just below the surface. And I would only add to what he says that it's only the grace of God that changes that in the life of any person. If you have experienced that, you cannot hide it under a bushel. Let's pray. Lord, we are overwhelmed by the grace of God to us in Christ. We are also convicted to respond with a great thankfulness in a simple way by being good citizens, good members of this community, just in the simplest way that we might have a way to manifest this great grace that we have been shown. Lord, it is not our desire that anyone live their existence in this utter futility that describes a life of one apart from Christ. We love and respect your will. You will save whom you will save. All we are asking, Lord, is that you would use us, change us completely as a result of grace, and use us to bring more people to yourself that you would receive all glory. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.